Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In South Korea's capital city, seeing a child out and about is something of a rarity. If a kid cries on the train, everyone would be like, oh, that's very rare. Like, it's so rare to have a child these days. Hyun Shin is a journalist for The Economist based in Korea. Old people would go to the parent and say, good job, you've had a baby in this era. South Korea's birth rate is the lowest in the world. On its current trajectory, the population is expected to fall by more than half to just 24 million by the year 2100. Hyun has been documenting the visible effects of her country's aging population. For starters, Between 2018 and 2023, more than 150 schools have closed down nationally. Buildings once used for childcare have been repurposed for an older clientele. A lot of them turned into nursing homes because the nurseries already had the facilities such as safety locks for the bathrooms. It was so easy to remodel them. So my grandparents' friends used to complain how small the tables were because they used the same tables in the nurseries. South Korea is still an outlier in the extent of its swift fertility crash. But this somewhat grim picture might not be so unique for long. In 2021, 124 countries and territories around the world had birth rates low enough to lead to a shrinking population. This kind of low fertility is going to be economically damaging. As populations age, it means growing bills for pensions and healthcare, with fewer young workers to pay for it all. Other drivers of economic growth, like entrepreneurship and innovation, can take a hit as well. If demographics is pushing the world towards the mother of all economic slumps, is there anything that can be done to turn things around? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, the economic consequences of falling fertility. First, we look at how low birth rates are no longer just affecting rich countries, but middle and low income ones too. Then, we hear how there's no quick fix for turning around the birth rate crisis. Policy can do a lot only in the long term. It is not going to work in the short run to expect there will be some switch you can just switch over and then see a big change right away. And finally, how a greying population can hold the younger generation back. The young people within the big company also become less innovative because you know they have less opportunity to be promoted. Alice, Tom, hello. Hello. Hey, Mike. 
I think this is the first week in quite a while where we're all actually where we're meant to be, the parts of the world we're paid to be in. I object to meant to be in. We are intrepid foreign correspondents, at least you and I are, Mike. So, you know, we should be out in the world on reporting trips rather than uh, twiddling our thumbs at home. But I have returned from my uh, intrepid reporting trip to Palm Beach and I am in Washington, D.C. as per my original billing. Well, unfortunately, most of uh, my reporting happens over Zoom calls and at the Bloomberg Terminal, so I'm back in the London studio as usual. I bet you never imagined, Alice, that so much of being a foreign correspondent would require you to be in Kentucky. I guess from Singapore's perspective, it's so small that it's basically impossible to walk for more than a couple of hours without crossing a border, so it's no wonder that I'm in a lot of places. Still, closer to the matter at hand, we are talking about fertility today. And rather than talking about our travel or expense policies, it's a good job The Economist has pretty good maternity and paternity leave policies. Otherwise, our editors might take the topic of today's podcast as something of a veiled criticism. Yeah, well, I mean, none of us have children, at least as far as I'm aware, but we're all quite close in age. And this is certainly a time where you start to really see the trade-offs that come with having kids, whether that's housing or work-life balance, or depending where you live in the world, the cost of education. Yeah, I was in Seoul quite recently, and I saw Hyun, who we heard from at the beginning. And it's hard to exaggerate just how visible that the lack of children in Seoul is. And it doesn't feel entirely coincidental that it's also a place with absurdly high house prices. And it's also a place with widespread and very expensive private tutoring that's very common. It's got a very competitive professional climate. But Seoul is really just a sort of extreme example of what is actually an increasingly common trend around the world. So Mike, tell us what's happening with fertility globally then. So the key number to think of that you might hear quite a bit around this discussion is called the total fertility rate. That is basically an estimate of the number of children each woman will have through their life. And it's done at a population level rather than a sort of media or anything like that. And the key number in that definition is 2.1. That is called the replacement rate of population, basically. If you have a level over 2.1, population will generally tend to grow over time. If you have a level below 2.1, it will tend to shrink over time. Obviously, there's other things at play there, mostly the longevity, the, the life expectancy of older people. If you look around the world, it's Japan and Italy that are often considered veterans of a low fertility rate. Their fertility rates fell below 2.1 quite a long time ago. They've had declining populations quite a long time. Two of the oldest countries in the world as a result of that. But those situations now look pretty slow and steady compared to what's happening in South Korea, in particular in other parts of East Asia. As we heard at the start of the show, they're having the most dramatic decline in fertility yet recorded. Their fertility rate is only 0.8. Japan and Italy might have got to those levels first, but their situation is becoming increasingly commonplace around the world. In 2010, there were 98 countries and territories with fertility rates lower than the replacement rate. By 2021, that number's gone up to 124. By 2030, it's expected by the United Nations to reach 136. And is this just a problem in rich countries? 
Increasingly not just a rich country problem either. Low fertility rates once upon a time people used to associate very strongly with rising and higher incomes. But it's not just countries like Japan and Italy, which have been developed, industrialized for a while, but middle income and lower income countries too. If you look at a country like Thailand, it's got a fertility rate of about 1.3. Brazil, a fertility rate of about 1.6. Perhaps most notably of all, India's fertility rate recently fell below 2.1 for the first time. It's expected to continue falling. If you look at the 15 biggest economies in the world, which includes Brazil, China, India, Mexico, all of them have fertility rates below 2.1 now. Right. So that's a pretty seismic shift from the rapid population growth that we saw in the 20th century. What are the economic ramifications of that, Mike? So some of these are really well known and some of them are sort of barely ever talked about. First of all, what happens in the sort of opening decades when birth rates decline is actually really economically beneficial, looking at it from a sort of output perspective. You get what's called a demographic dividend. In its most basic sense, it means there are fewer children to look after and lots of young adults around. That means there's more people out working. This is really common. A lot of countries go through this when they're transitioning very quickly from pre-industrial fertility rates, often about six children or so per woman to levels of more like two. So what you end up with initially is an enormous group of working age people from the last generation of kids where the parents had that very high fertility rate, far fewer elderly people to look after and far fewer children to be looking after. So if you're a GDP maximizer, that's really what you want. An enormous group of 20 to 40 year olds surrounded by pretty small older and younger groups. It's good news for the tax man as well, obviously. Yeah, so that's the first step of things. So that pattern of fertility, it makes people feel richer and things seem easier for a while. But then what happens? So this one doesn't take a sort of expert to understand. People get older. Those low birth rates start to feed through into smaller new cohorts of young workers. This usually happens at the same time that life expectancies are rising, which means healthcare spending going up, which means pension spending going up. We know all about this sort of thing. It's what we talk about whenever the demographic transition or demographic challenges of the subject it's not getting any better, but we basically know what the solution is here. Rest in peace, your income. The tax man is coming to strip it all away to spend on pension spending and healthcare spending. Nobody likes it. Pension ages are going to have to rise. But I think we all know what the answer is here, basically. Um, it's just difficult. Nobody wants to wear it. But there are some really less well understood economic effects as well, which may turn out to be just as significant. And those are the effects on things like innovation and on entrepreneurship. Basically, there's a lot of research about the way young people think differently to older people. Younger people have more of what's called fluid intelligence. It's typically thought of as sort of problem solving in areas that people haven't encountered before. You get less of that. The worry is that you get less disruptive innovation and eventually not having as many new out-of-the-box inventions and changes to the way we do things means lower productivity and it compounds the problems with the fiscal shortfall. We'll be getting into the productivity issue a bit later in the show. Well, uh, that all sounds like a bit of a slow-moving car crash to me, Mike. Can you shed any more light as to why exactly this is happening? So to get to the bottom of what's driving countries around the world into demographic decline and whether there's a way of stopping it, 
I spoke to Matthias Dopke. He's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. He's written a lot about fertility and the issues surrounding it. Matthias, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So let's start with the basics. Most places in the world once had fertility rates of around six per woman, whether this is countries that are low income today or places that are high income today, but in the distant past. You've seen then a decline from that sort of level to around two or just below. Obviously, this didn't all happen overnight. What do economists and historians look at as the main causes of that initial decline? Initially, it is an observation that is perplexing for economists because it happens as economies develop and people get richer. And usually as we get richer, we want to have more things, not less. And so the way economists resolve this conundrum is with this idea of a quantity-quality trade-off. When you think about deciding how many children you want to have, you're really doing two decisions at the same time. One decision is how many children you want to have, but another decision is how much you want to invest in them. Nowadays, people want to invest a lot in their children, which means we spend a lot of time caring for the children. We pay for good schools. We want them to get a lot of education. It's really a lifelong project with a lot of input from the parents, both in terms of time and money. It used to be very different. If you think back to earlier pre-industrial times, parents did not do all of these things. Children did not go to school. Instead, children actually worked from a young age. So children actually contributed a lot to the household income rather than being a recipient of spending and time for the parents. And so this shift from low investment to high investment is the primary reason we believe that fertility fell as economies got richer. So more recently, some of the relationships that we relied on and understood between income and fertility seem to have changed or broken down a little bit. You've written some research on this subject in the last year or so. Tell us a little bit about those changes to the standard model. That's right. And this is really something that's happened in the last 20 years or so. So in the time I've been in the profession, the data on fertility has really changed quite dramatically. These ideas I talked about earlier essentially relate fertility to the costs of children. And one aspect of this cost is investment in children, which we often measure by education. The second aspect of the cost of children that was also emphasized is the opportunity cost of time, which just means it takes time to raise children. Often it is mothers that spend most of this time. So as mothers' time gets more expensive, children also get more expensive. And we measure the value of a mother's time by wages. So in a country where many mothers work and receive high wage in the labor market, children are relatively more expensive. And so these ideas of the cost of children driving fertility worked very well in the data until two or three decades ago, in the sense that the richer countries had fewer children and also countries where we had higher female labor force participation, those countries also had lower fertility rates compared to those where many mothers were staying at home to care for their children. Now, in the last two or three decades, these relationships have reversed within the high-income countries. You observe now that higher-income countries have similar or maybe even slightly higher fertility rates than the lower-income countries in this group. And maybe more importantly, you observe that countries where many mothers work have higher fertility rates than those where more mothers stay at home. So these relationships have reversed, which is really a challenge for economists and other social scientists to account for. 
So let's have a go at that challenge. How do you account for it? In these richer countries with low fertility rates, why have they ended up with these different outcomes where for some the fertility rate hasn't dropped quite so precipitously? We believe what we are seeing is that in terms of what mothers actually want to do, in terms of the aspirations that men and women have, we had had this convergence in gender roles essentially in all of the high-income countries. So if you ask young women if they plan to have careers and to have children, most will say that they want to have both. By the way, the same answers men would give, you know, it's something that men, of course, have been doing for many decades. Now, when you come to this point where essentially the objective that couples have is for both to work and to also have a family, the question becomes, well, how easy is it to do this in practice? And what we point out is that what seems to vary now a lot across countries is how compatible are families and careers actually in the society that you live in. And that depends on various factors. Public policy is one of them. For example, provision of uh, public childcare obviously matters for how easy it is to combine a career and having a family. But there's also other factors such as prevalent social norms and also what the other parent does. You know, the contributions of fathers in the household, of course, also matter. And if there's a conflict between career and family is lessened, that will make it easier to decide to have more children. And we think this is now what explains a lot of this variation that we're seeing across countries today. So given those causes and drivers, how do you view the prospects of this changing? Because I think on the face of it, sometimes this looks incredibly bleak. Fertility rate of about one means that essentially uh, the next generation of children is roughly half the size of their parents' generation. You know, you project those numbers forward for any extended period of time and the population shrinks fairly rapidly in the grand scheme of things. Do you see a prospect of this changing or do you think this is just a new permanent way of living? Some observers say, well, we have to go back to a more traditional division of labor. I don't think that's going to happen. I think gender equality is uh, here to stay. Of course, we're still far from equality, but I think this direction of change is not going to reverse. One way to think about the current situation is that we currently have a mismatch between what aspirations are that people have for their lives and what the institutions and social norms are that they currently are facing in their day-to-day lives. What I mean by this is that many of the institutions we have today and also the social norms that back up what people do still reflect the reality of a few decades ago. For example, we have this observation in uh, time use data that uh, even in couples where women are the primary earners, where they make uh, higher income and uh, work more hours than their husbands, they still tend to do the majority of the housework and the majority of the childcare. Economically, that doesn't make much sense. We think this reflects uh, social norms that uh, are still lagging behind the reality that we are facing today. Now, we do know that these social norms are changing. So the upshot of this is that I think there's a prospect that the social norms and also the institutions keep catching up to our new reality and therefore lessen this conflict between families and careers going forward. And that would be a reason for fertility rates to recover at least somewhat. If you were in charge here as someone with a very strong command of the evidence around what certain policies do, for example, are there particular things that you would look at doing that might alleviate some of the gaps between career ambition and the social norms of parenting that you've described there? Right. I do think policy can do a lot. I also think policy can do a lot only in the long term. It is not going to work in the short run to expect there will be some switch you can just switch over and then see a big change right away. Countries have tried subsidies, for example, just hand out cash benefits for having children. Those tend to have quite uh, low effects. 
But if you look at this wider situation, you know, if you ask the question, for example, why is it the case that today in, say, Scandinavian countries in France, you have an environment that is more favorable to having a gender-balanced way of raising children, you have to, I think, conclude that public policy did play an important role in this. For example, think of parental leave. If you have a policy that says that there is a very extensive parental leave, but just for mothers and nothing at all for fathers, of course, this policy will reinforce a traditional division of labor and traditional gender norms. If you have an environment where you create a public childcare that's easily accessible and it becomes a more a standard to send your kids into those childcare centers and keep on working for both parents, over time, the social norms also will start to shift. So I think policy changes that places like Sweden and France did decades ago over time did result in this new reality. Well, that's all absolutely fascinating. Matthias, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you for having me on. So Alice and Tom, lots to unpack there, especially the apparent impact of government policy, the sort of intersection between culture, society, what governments can enforce from a top-down basis, and how these things inform each other. What do you reckon? Can governments turn that fertility frown upside down? God, you can imagine that being some sort of terrible slogan for having more babies. Well, uh, terrible, cheesy slogans aside, I agree there's tons to pick up on there. I guess I was most interested in the point Matthias made about how women in richer countries are no longer those with the lowest birth and fertility rates of all. And in some ways, that's kind of encouraging, in part because, look, low or sharply declining birth rates are basically the setup for every horrible science fiction film about women being forced back into domestic servitude or worse. You know, I've spent way too much time reading and then watching The Handmaid's Tale not to feel a certain way about what this story might imply for women or what people will say about women should be doing with their time and their bodies. That said, it seems like when women have high enough incomes, they tend to be a bit more inclined to have kids once more, or at least not sort of entirely disinclined to have them. Mattia suggested various things that might have lessened the conflict that women feel between work and having children, things like policy, men doing more. But I also sort of immediately wondered whether it does have something to do with richer women these days earning enough that it makes sense for them to keep working and pay for childcare instead of doing it themselves. So when women were just breaking into the the workforce in the 50s and 60s, in lower paying or more junior roles, their wages might not have covered childcare costs and it might not have made any sense for them to try and do both. But now that women are more commonplace in higher paying or more powerful roles, it does make more sense for them to keep working and they have the income to pay for that care. Now, whether that is enough to spare the world from the ravages of declining populations, probably not, but it's not nothing. As an aside, I just wanted to say that I think it's hilarious hearing someone talk about children as a quantity quality trade-off. But more seriously, I think one debate this sheds a new light on is immigration. Obviously, immigration has become a very hot issue in a lot of rich countries in recent years with lots of fears over migrants stealing domestic jobs. But the chronic labor shortages we're already seeing in many rich countries, which have been feeding in inflation, are in no small part thanks to an aging population, and that's just going to get a lot worse. Now, one way to start counterbalancing that is to bring in more migrants who tend to be much younger than the domestic populations in a lot of rich countries. Now, in the very long run, that option may disappear as demographic decline affects more and more countries around the world, but I think the timing is such that 
in the years ahead, immigration could be a valuable lever for easing some of the pressures of an aging population. Now, listeners, if you're interested in hearing more about demography, next week's episode of Drum Tower, which is The Economist's podcast on China, takes a deeper look at how declining birth rates are affecting that country, which has recently ceded its place as the world's most populous country to India. Another way that declining populations are likely to impact economies in the years ahead is through the housing market. And there's an excellent piece in The Economist Weekly Edition this week by our colleague Callum Williams on whether the housing collapse, which is a topic that we picked up a couple of weeks ago, is now over. And spoiler alert, Callum came to mostly the same conclusion that we did, that the slump has probably come to an end. But to find out why he thinks that is the case, you can go and read his piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we will hear about how aging populations are a drag on innovation and entrepreneurship, all the things that you would generally want for a vibrant economy. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Before the break, we heard how birth rates have been declining to below the replacement rate in a lot of countries. But among those nations, it's some of the ones with social policies that support women and men to have more balance and equality in their domestic and working lives that have seen a less precipitous drop in fertility rates. And governments will be wise to think about that because turning low birth rate trends around will prove vital for the health of their economies in the coming decades. For more on this, I wanted to speak to James Liang. He's the co-founder of Trip.com, formerly Ctrip, a global travel company based in China. He's also research professor of applied economics at Guanghua School of Management at Peking University, and he's written extensively on demographics. James, hello. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit more about how demographics impact innovation and eventually productivity. What sort of channel are we talking about working here? There are quite a few channels. The first is uh, the scale factor. You have more people, more researchers and talents and scientists, more investment into new technology. Also, there's uh, the market effect. The larger the market, the more customers you have, the more data you have, 
you've got better algorithm, better internet platforms. If you want to do the best AI algorithm or best e-commerce website or best travel site, it's very helpful to have a large customer or home country population that will allow you to improve your algorithm with all the data and also have a lot of engineers who can invest to improve your platform. If you're talking about who can get to the market first, if you have a large population, you can few months or years earlier than a startup in a smaller country to reach the cricket of mass and to become profitable. Then after you became commercially profitable in your home country, then you can start invading other countries' markets. So in the internet age and also in the AI age, home country population, the scale factor is a big advantage for tech companies. So the scale, but what about the impact of an older age structure? So if you have a top-heavy age structure, meaning you have a lot more older people than younger people, like a lot more 40 or 50-year-old than 20 or 30-year-old, exactly sort of the age structure you're seeing in Japan, which is the first country who experiences age structure problem, then the young people have less opportunity to be promoted or to get the kind of training or kind of necessary skill or necessary social capital or the you know, financial capital to start new companies. So as you see in the last 30 years, as age structure getting older, the entrepreneurship or the young people are less likely to start a company in Japan. And not just that, but also the young people within the big company also become less innovative because you know they have less opportunity to be promoted. So they're usually occupying low rank jobs. So they cannot start leading the most innovative projects. And the companies usually when you have the older people have all the saying, then they will be more conservative in terms of trying new technology or be creating new technologies. So that's exactly what happened in the most big Japanese companies. Those companies were very innovative in the 80s, but last 30 years, they kind of missed out completely the AI and the IT revolution. So the difference between the way that young people and older people think is really interesting. In terms of fluid and crystallized intelligence, it's generally understood that young people have somewhat more of the fluid, problem-solving sort. How much importance do you attach to that sort of difference? Older people do pretty well, like verbal communication skills. But young people are more energetic, they're better learners. They respond to new things more quickly and they absorb new technology or new paradigms more quickly than older people. And also they are better entrepreneurs because at the 20s or 30s, before you have a big family or taking care of kids, you are more likely to take risk and you're more mobile to move to a different city, to work with your partners, uh, co-founders. So you see that everywhere in most countries, I would say the best age to start a company or the peak entrepreneurial age is around 30, except in Japan. Japan is uh, because they suffered an aging problem. <laughs> you actually see 30-year-old is less likely to start a company than even the 50-year-old. That's exactly the kind of uh, negative impact of aging on entrepreneurship. 
James, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Thank you very much for making the time. A pleasure. So, Alice, Tom, what do you make of it all? Should we be urging our listeners to do their part, pause the podcast, and rush off to procreate? <laughs> um, sure, yeah. I mean, if they want to, I guess, is <laughs> the short answer to that question. Yeah, but the thing I think is really interesting about this subject is that it really is one of those topics that it just gets into everything. Once you start thinking about it, it's kind of hard to imagine that anything else really matters everything is demographic destiny. So the housing market is once the boomers start dying off en masse, suddenly there might actually be an oversupply of housing, whether or not there are sort of NIMBYs around. All the things we think and say about the China versus America rivalry, well, now that China may be going into an economic decline, or at least slowing the rate at which it can grow, in part thanks to its demographic destiny, that completely changes the calculus for that geopolitical sort of skirmishing. Will your pension be around to support you? You better check the population pyramid. And if we are all old, will anyone ever invent anything ever again? And according to Mike, they probably won't because old people don't have the right kind of innovative intelligence. Once you dig into it, there really are a few questions that are as big as this one. And uh, I'm very glad that we have got to talk about it today. I'd also add to your list there the rise of countries like Indonesia and Nigeria, whose booming populations are going to play an increasingly important role in the decades ahead, precisely because their fertility rates have been slower to come down the curve. But I wanted to pick up on this idea of the connection between innovation and the structure of the population pyramid, which seems both very interesting and incredibly important, as it could mean that an aging population will be even more of a drag on our economies than we've traditionally thought. And in defense of our older Money Talks listeners, I think it's worth just pointing out that this idea that neuroplasticity declines with age, which means that older workers are less able to adapt to new knowledge, is now somewhat contested by scientists. There's a, another school of thought that says the brain is kind of like a muscle that you can train, including for tasks like creative thinking. Whether our workplaces and our education systems are set up to do that is another matter, but perhaps there's at least hope that a something innovation is not inevitable as populations age. Yeah, I need to be careful with my definitive analysis of the psychology here. I'm going to have our colleagues on the science section, any listeners to the Babbage podcast, well, I'll have them on my case if I'm not careful. I did really enjoy talking about this and doing this episode, in large part because of the same sentiment Alice expressed, which is when you start to think about this too much, it does start to slowly feel like nothing else really matters and it's the most important thing going on. When we've written about this before, it often generates strong responses and pushback people feel instinctively and understandably like you're talking about a social trend and a demographic trend, but that you're making a judgment of people's personal decisions as well, which is obviously not the intention. What I do think it also generates is a lot of really interesting discussion about the role of the government and the nature of innovation exactly in the way that Tom brings up. One of the things that came up a lot when we were thinking about this was a discussion of education, even in a lot of the world where you're seeing slowly declining birth rates. 
education is becoming much more widespread in the same country. So you're still going to have a lot more innovative potential realistically in a place like, say, India, where there's a very narrowly below replacement rate fertility rate than you would have in the past when, you know, the fertility rate was much, much higher because of that sort of advanced education being spread around. So it's certainly not the case that fertility is the only thing going on. We've also thought a lot about the sort of environmental side of this, which gets very thorny. Obviously, some people think that actually a smaller population in general might not be the worst thing in the world. People using fewer resources, you've then got to balance that against the possibility that you have fewer young people making the sort of new innovations and new inventions that might offset things like climate change, the really sort of thorny social problems. And I also take Alice's point from earlier in the show about how this can all get a bit handmaid's tale if it's not talked about in a sensible way. It's a bit of a sort of obsession on parts of the political right. But I do think it's a major issue. And I think as long as it's owned by that group of people, it's difficult to talk about properly. If you look at places like Korea, like Southern Europe, it's actually places with somewhat less equal gender roles in the home that have the lowest fertility rates. So there's a sort of progressive or liberal way of thinking about this, I think, even if you don't think you should push fertility rates back to five or six or, or whatever, when you're talking about Korean fertility rates and the really low ones in East Asia and Southern Europe, but increasingly in a lot of the rest of the world, getting it back to sort of 1.5 or anywhere near there is a pretty pressing thing for some of these countries because the small numbers really, really matter at that level. And you start to get into situations where you're forecasting very, very rapid population decline indeed. It's a really interesting point you made there, Mike, around the fact that countries like South Korea and Italy, where for the most part, attitudes towards gender have often kind of erred towards the more traditional side of things actually have even lower fertility rates and an even bigger demographic problem than a lot of other countries around the rich world. So that certainly doesn't suggest that kind of going back to a, a traditional view of gender roles is the way to kind of resolve some of these challenges. Great. Well, with yet another thorny social and economic problem solved by the Money Talks team, we can pivot to our stats of the week. Tom, do you want to go first? I'd be delighted to. So my stat of the week is $150 billion, which is the wealth of Larry Ellison, who is the co-founder of Oracle, which is a big business software firm that was started back in the 1970s, around the same time as Microsoft. And now people don't talk that much about Oracle or Larry Ellison so much these days, but he is actually now neck and neck with Jeff Bezos for the title of third richest person in the world up from just eighth last year. So Larry Ellison owns a bit over 40% of Oracle, and the company's share price has rocketed over the past year or so as it's pivoted its business towards more cloud-based offerings and increasingly moving into providing AI services to its clients. And investors seem pretty happy with that. So I guess it's a good time to be Larry Ellison. Does he have any kids, though? Because that's the real question. <laughs> I actually don't know. He has lots of yachts. The kids of the sea. Like. 
All right, we'll uh, we'll let off the hook. My stat of the week this week is ninety percent, which is the share of Georgia's peach crop that was destroyed by a freeze. An unusually warm winter meant that a lot of the peach trees in Georgia blossomed very early, and spring frost has killed off all the flowers. So for the trio of orchards in the middle of Georgia that supply about one hundred fifty million peaches annually, they've actually lost ninety five percent of their crop. So that's essentially the entire thing. The last time they suffered so badly was in nineteen fifty five back when uh, women had plenty of children, but uh, also no peaches. <laughs> See, I like, Alice, with this stat that you've managed to combine one thing that I think we've been doing quite a bit recently of agricultural commodity type <laughs> stats have been cropping up a lot with also your long running thing of the stat has to be miserable. <laughs> I've got a relatively positive stat. I've got ready to go and I wondered whether this might be the week, but it isn't. My stat this week is 33,502, which is the level that the Nikkei 225 just passed. That is as of the 14th of June. That leaves it not a million miles away from 38915, which is the absolute all-time high for the Japanese index set in December 1989. So if you've been waiting 34 years for your returns to be in positive territory, you might not have that much longer to wait. Uh, Japan's population may be shrinking, but its stock market is booming. So something positive, at least. I think that's about all we've got time for. Uh, And with that, I would like to thank Matthias Dopka and James Liang for joining us. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcast@economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.